you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, a live literary event series from LAist. We are back with guests, author Amanda Montel and actor Bella Lavelle. You can find us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum. Tickets at LAist.com events. From 89.3 KPCC and kpcc.org, this is Take Two. May Martinez, thanks for joining us. All right, a lot to get to today, so we're going to jump right in and head to Echo Park Lake. Last night, protesters and police clashed during an attempt by the city to close off the park and move many unhoused people who live there. LAPD officers confronted activists on one side of the park while workers put up a fence on the other side. The fence now goes around the entire park, and police are preventing people from entering or exiting. Signs posted nearby say people who remain have until 10.30 tonight to leave the area. KPCC senior politics reporter Libby Denkman has been there all day, and she's here to tell us uh, what's next. Libby, you've been uh, at Echo Park since sunrise after this uh, big LAPD action. What's been going on there? Yes, a so as you mentioned, the entire park is closed off here. All the streets around Echo Park Lake are inaccessible. LAPD police lines and cones are blocking them. Also, a lot of police cruisers. I saw about a dozen officers on motorcycles go by a few hours ago. And this is all part of a planned action by the city to shut down the lake and do some uh, maintenance repairs, do some landscaping, plumbing work, some other types of you know painting and electro- electrical work, but also to clear the homeless encampment where um, more than uh, 200 people over the course of this pandemic year and, and a few months have lived on and off in the northeast corner of the park where there are still at this hour, I'm looking at them right now, um, a number of tents still up in the northeast corner of the park. But folks within the police perimeter and within these fences that were put up yesterday evening are not being allowed to uh, come and go as they please. They're being asked to clear their belongings. And as you said, the deadline is 10.30 p.m. tonight to get those tents out of there. How much notice were they given about this uh, big LAPD action to close the park? You know, it's been really hard to nail down. This homeless community here, the tent community at Echo Park, has been very politically active. They managed to uh, get enough support and, and protesters helped discourage uh, the clearance of the park over a year ago now. And in recent weeks, there's been rumors that there would be another attempt by the city to close the park and, and clear the encampment. Um, when reporters have been asking LA City Councilman Mitch O'Farrell, who represents the area, when the closure would actually occur, what the timeline was, his office said it was going to happen soon or, you know, just sort of stayed vague about the actual timeline. Yeah. And so, you know, the, the folks who live here say, you know, last night uh, it just kind of came out of nowhere and really felt like under the cover of night, the police were trying to clear them out so that they would avoid a massive protest response. But of course, hundreds of people still showed up to show solidarity with these homeless residents. Yeah, soon is not a specific time or date. Now, you spoke uh, to not. Henry, uh, an unhoused resident trying to get back into the park about a situation. Now, let's listen to what Henry had to say. Why can't we walk down American Street? I fought for these streets. I'm not a criminal. 
And you live here. And I live here. And, and my property is there. No. And my wife is there too, and they won't let me in. Libby, what's the latest with Henry? That's, yeah, Henry, who is married to Valerie Zeller. They got married in the park last weekend. And Valerie was in the park without a cell phone because Henry, when the police action started last night, was out at his job. He repairs bicycles in the area. So Henry was trying to get through the police line all morning. It took a few hours. I was with him for, for most of that. And eventually, LAPD were able to get him a LASA ex- escort to get through this police line back to his wife, Valerie. And they are now uh, one of about 10 or 12 residents of the tent community that are still remaining in the park. Um, according to LASA and according to accounts by the residents themselves, a number of people have accepted shelter from inside the park. Others actually scattered and were scared of the police uh, presence and response yesterday. And so they did not return to their tents and now are are locked out of the park. Now, we've heard from some house residents in Echo Park who were upset about the encampment at the lake. Uh, but there are others, uh, such as a Ruth Beaglehole, who made friends with people living in the encampments. They've tried to build a community. They have a garden. They just finished showers down there. They have community meetings. Libby, what are people in Echo Park thinking, especially after last night's operation? You know, you hear from some really vocal folks online, and uh, one person who showed up to the police line to say he was happy that the park was shut down and that the homeless community would be cleared out. But honestly, the folks that I've talked to so far, people walking their dogs, people going to coffee shops in the area at Echo Park, Every single person I've talked to said that they have sympathy for the homeless residents who pretty much had been minding their own business there in the park. And they really were disturbed by the huge police presence and and action that it took to close down the park. And and having the fences kind of pop up overnight was also pretty disturbing. Um, You know, again, it the Mitch O'Farrell and other politicians in L.A. are really stuck between uh, constituents who, you know, don't believe that the park should be used for any kind of camping or, or living and other folks who really understand that there's a serious housing crisis in L.A. and many people feel like they don't have any other options. Libby, you mentioned how people, uh, most of the people living in the park were offered project room key placements, but this isn't a permanent uh, housing solution. What do the people uh, offer these placements think about them? Right. So the project room key placements are these hotel rooms that most of the residents are now being offered. They've been upgraded to tier one status with LASA, which, um, you know, allows them to be eligible for these temporary hotel rooms that the city is providing because of the COVID-19 crisis. Now, there's also a winter shelter in the area that is being offered. Um, A number of the folks inside, though, say they don't want to go to a project home key, uh, excuse me, project room key hotel room because it is temporary. It's only available for a few months and they'll have to move afterwards. And also they can't take their pets. They um, have a sort of a curfew in the project room key hotels because that's when nurses are available to check them in and check them for COVID symptoms. Um, But Lhasa does tell me that Emotional support animals are allowed at the Project Room Key site, so that is something that they're trying to encourage people to take advantage of. Living about eight hours, uh, 10.30, that is uh, when uh, people will be, I guess, asked to leave or forced to leave. So what will happen to those people? What's your sense on, on those people that are still in the park tonight, and what happens to all their stuff? You know, uh, last night when there was a huge protest and 
People were clashing with the police line. The police were trying to push people back as the fences were getting installed. Um, You know, the police said this morning that it was largely peaceful, that most of the um, interactions were verbal clashes. But, um, you know, they they gave credit to the protesters for being largely peaceful. Only one person was arrested for refusing to comply with an order. Um, There was a journalist from The Intercept, who had his arm broken in a clash with police. He says that it was a baton, a, a police baton that broke his arm. Um, now, tonight, you know, there is expected to be another big uh, protest presence to show solidarity with folks who are being forced to leave at that time. Okay. It is unclear whether, you know, people who stay, the homeless residents, would be arrested. But uh, it is clear that the sanitation workers will be taking their belongings out putting them in storage, and the requirement will be to, to get out of the park. That's KPCC's senior politics reporter, Libby Denkman. You can read uh, all of her reporting on this at LAS.com. That's L-A-I-S-T dot com. Libby, thanks. Thanks, A. People get ready as a train of coming. You don't need no baggage. You just get Imagine if you could charge your electric vehicle at the places you already love to eat, shop, and play. Whether you're at the movies, on your weekly grocery trip, or running errands at your local mall, Volta EV charging stations are built around your day-to-day and located in your community and nationwide. All you have to do is check in, plug in, and go about your day. It's EV charging made convenient. Download the Volta app to find your new favorite place to charge. Alias has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite L.A. restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at LAS.com events. Back now with more Take 2 on 89.3 KPCC and streaming on the KPCC app. I'm Martinez. Following the shooting in Boulder, Colorado this week, much of the news coverage seemed to suggest that mass shootings are happening again now that the pandemic is maybe fading away. Just the week before, eight people were also killed by a single shooter in Atlanta. But the sad fact of the matter is that gun violence was up in 2020. That's according to data from the Gun Violence Archive. Nearly 20,000 people were killed in shootings last year. That's more incidents than in the last two decades. Another 24,000 were killed by suicide. Now, for more insight into what's going on, we're joined now by Dr. Garen Wintemute. He's a professor of emergency medicine at UC Davis and an expert on gun violence as a public health issue. Doctor, welcome. Thank you for having me. Now, as we just outlined up top, uh, 2020 was a pretty bad year for gun violence. Where do you think this notion comes from that the pandemic somehow made mass shootings go away and that uh, now that we're coming out from the stay-at-home orders that they've all of a sudden returned? There 
was a decrease in frequency of the large-scale public mass shooting, the shootings, the events that have names that we've come to know. Um, but as, as you just mentioned, um, rates of firearm violence, if anything, increased in uh, 2020. It's important to remember during the pandemic or otherwise, public mass shootings not only account for a very small percentage of firearm violence, they don't even account for most mass shootings. Most mass shootings are private events. They involve domestic violence or something like that, and they don't acquire names uh, the way Boulder and Atlanta just did. But you're right. Violence did not take a break during the pandemic. It went up. And just one more thing on this. Could it be that just because of the pandemic, there there weren't places or as many places that had a lot of people there? And, and, and I don't know. I, I'm just trying to think of a, a reason why that seems to be the narrative. Well, so I, I don't disagree with that piece of the narrative. There, there were fewer large congregations of people, and we saw fewer big big, large-scale public mass okay. shootings. We did not see fewer mass shootings. Okay, now that number of almost 20,000 shooting deaths is significantly higher than the year before by almost 4,000. Doctor, what sense do you have about why it was so bad last year? Uh, every single reason you can think of, and, yeah. and then some. So we had a surge in gun purchasing, for one thing, for a bunch of reasons uh, that continued right through the end of the year. Uh, and was unlike anything we've ever seen. And to fast forward, we were about to live through the after effects of that surge in purchasing, whatever they turn out to be. Um, there was, uh, beginning in late spring with George Floyd's murder, there were protests, reactions to those protests, move on through the year. There was the advent of political violence, a contested election, um, an assault on the Capitol, um, all of those things contributed to violence. All of those things also contributed to an excess in firearm purchasing, which I just mentioned. On that, on the firearm purchases, I, I live in a, in a city where there's a, about a two-block stretch, uh, Doctor, where there are three gun shops and there were lines out the door. Um, yes. Just lines out the door. What, what do you think is the reason for that? Well, people buy guns for fear uh, more than for all other reasons put together. But but that fear has at least two types. One is what we ordinarily think of, that I'm buying a gun because I think it will make my home safer. I'm doing it for protection. That turns out on balance to be a myth. Bringing a gun into the home increases risk of a violent death. It doesn't decrease it. The other kind of fear, though, is fear that, gee, maybe I won't be able to buy this gun in the future because what do you know, a, a Democrat's been elected president and, and some policies might change and I won't be able to buy this assault type rifle that, that I have a yen for. So people purchase strategically. Now, after uh, Boulder and Atlanta officials have come out again to condemn the violence, um, why is it that mass shootings, Dr. Trigger, such a big response when, as we've discussed, people die by guns every day and it goes largely unnoticed? Uh, for a couple of reasons. One is they're uncommon. Let's remember and be thankful. Um, the other is because they're uncommon, they make the news. So we're all much more aware of them than we are of uh, the, the shootings that occur on a daily basis. And let me put that one in perspective. So we're all grieving that 10 people in Boulder 
and eight people in Atlanta are not sharing this beautiful Thursday with us. But on an average day, more than 100 people die from firearm violence in the United States. We, we have lost, in the last 10 years, we have lost more civilians to firearm violence than we had combat fatalities in World War II and Vietnam combined. We just don't pay attention. Yeah, that's amazing, isn't it? That that slice of our brain that uh, does not pay attention to to certain we, things. You, and I guess they're, they're the, obvious we, to you, doctor, and maybe to people in your in your industry in your business. But uh, you know, yeah, I, I wonder why people don't pay attention to that. Well, we we think they happen to people who aren't like us. Often, right. um, we can, and to the extent that we can create some distance, um, we don't make it our problem. We say, gosh, it couldn't have happened here. Or as, as one well-meaning person said about Boulder, it's incomprehensible. Um, I don't mean disrespect, but that's yeah. nonsense. It is completely comprehensible. The, the fundamental change that needs to occur is that each one of us needs to understand that whoever we are, whatever we may look like, whatever our political positions might be, this is our problem individually. We're talking to Dr. Garen Wintemute, a professor of emergency medicine at UC Davis, also an expert on gun violence as a public health issue. Um, in terms of the laws, uh, the president and the vice president have both said that they need legislators on board to, to really affect change. Uh, but there are a few laws on states' books, such as California's, that have helped curb gun violence. What's one of the things, doctor, that's proven to be effective? Well, let's take Boulder. Um, that gentleman bought a, a particular firearm uh, and he was involved in the shooting uh, a very short time later. Here in California, that weapon's illegal. You can't buy it. Um, in addition, that man had been convicted of a violent misdemeanor. In Colorado, that doesn't matter. He can buy all the guns he wants. But in California, he's he would have been prohibited from buying any gun at all or ammunition for that matter. So laws make a difference. Some other things that we put on the on the short list in terms of changing the law, requiring a background check for all purchases of firearms. California does that, uh, but most of the country does not. Um, restrictions on particularly lethal weapons, assault weapons, we'll call them. Um, California bans that, most of the country um, does not. Um, restrictions on firearm purchases by people with a prior history of violent criminal activity. It's a myth that people who've been convicted of violent crimes can't buy guns. In California, they can't, but in most of the country, they can't. What about the role in mental health treatment in all this? Thank you for bringing that up. Um, mental health plays a much, mental illness plays a much smaller role in interpersonal violence, one person on another, than people think. No more than four to 5% of interpersonal violence is primarily attributable to mental illness. And I just do not buy the argument that for a person to have committed a heinous crime, they must be mentally ill. That's one more way of saying it's not my problem. Now, suicide is something else again. Um, when it comes to suicide, Mental illness, acute mental illness, um, is is a big risk factor. How does that work, uh, doctor, when it comes to someone wanting to buy a gun? Say they, they have a, a history of, of, of mental health issues, say they've seen a doctor for a long time. Will that somehow play into any kind of background check? So as, as you described it, no, it would not. Um, we have to remember that mental illness is an illness. It's not a character flaw. Um, so here in California, 
um, people who have been involuntarily hospitalized because of mental illness associated with dangerousness to themselves or to others are prohibited for five years after those hospitalizations from buying or possessing guns in California. Under federal law, there is a lifetime prohibition, but the bar um, is set higher. The other thing though that we have in California, and this is really smart, is something called a gun violence restraining order. It's designed to fill the gaps. So a person has not been convicted of a violent crime. They are not hospitalizable for violence to self or others, but everybody knows something really awful is going to happen. They're making threats, let's say, and they have guns. Just as we do with domestic violence restraining orders, law enforcement or family members can go to a judge and basically say, your honor, we've got a big problem in the next few weeks here and guns are part of the problem. And her honor can look at the evidence. There are rules about what has to be looked at and say, yes, we do and issue an order. The guns are recovered temporarily while the problem is sorted out. Um, We've used that law to, to my knowledge, we've used that law at least 20 times, 21 times, in efforts to prevent mass shootings in California. Threatening to commit a mass shooting, but hasn't broken the law and isn't uh, severely mentally ill. And those orders have been used to recover guns or prevent them from being purchased, and those shootings did not occur. Okay, yeah, I asked you that question, doctor, because I've had conversations with people, uh, people that I know that I consider friends that have been struggling with things, and they would love to go talk to someone about what they're dealing with, but are worried. I I don't know how how the messaging got to them that they think that something that's their right will be taken away, whether it's buying a gun or driving or anything like that. Yep. It just, it, the only way that can happen is if a person's acute mental illness is so severe that the, the person they're seeing for treatment um, makes a judgment okay. that they, they require hospitalization even involuntarily. But no, just if I have a, a mental illness, just as if I have asthma or a heart problem, go to a doctor and get treatment. Yeah, absolutely. Get Dr. Garen Wintemute, a professor of emergency medicine at UC Davis, also an expert on gun violence as a public health issue. Doctor, thank you very much. A pleasure. Thank you. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps. Hi, I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, and we are back for another round. This is clearly an NPR audience. (laughs) I think they're so smart. What the hell? My guests this time are actor Vela Lavelle and author Amanda Montel, whose new book, The Age of Magical Overthinking, is out now. Join us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum for book talk, trivia, and hot takes. Tickets can be found at laist.com slash events. Network, 
Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm A. Martinez. After 40 episodes, LA Studios podcast Servant of Pod is coming to an end. For the past year, we've been regularly checking in with our friend and host of the podcast, Nick Kwa, about his show and all things audio industry related. Now, before we get to our goodbyes, there is still one more episode, and as always, Nick is here to tell us all about it. Now, Nick, I will uh, attempt uh, and try my best not to sob uncontrollably throughout this whole Servant and Pod, but okay, let's get to the very last episode of your podcast. Now, in it, you speak with reporter Ashley Carmen, who covers podcasting and the audio industry for The Verge. So what did you two talk about? Yeah, so basically the idea was just to take stock and take a big picture of like the podcast business as like major topics and issues at the outset of 2021. Uh, Servant of Pod might be coming to an end, but there's still lots and lots to talk about and to cover. And so we went over just like a, a laundry list of, of things, basically. We talked about the workplace reckonings of the past few months, uh, the increasing consolidation in the podcast business in the past year, uh, labor organizing, you know, prevailing concerns that podcasting is still a bubble, despite uh, the amount of money and jobs is being generated out of it. And we also spent a little bit of time talking about the sort of new but not so new phenomenon of social audio represented by buzzy apps like Clubhouse. All right. So that bubble that you mentioned, because, yeah, podcasting is still thought of in that way as, as being a, a bubble of sorts. So what did you mean by that? And, and how did you come to a conclusion? Yeah. So there, there remains this sense both within and even beyond the industry um, that podcasting is still pretty frothy. Um, that You know, there's a lot of new interests, new money, new show launches. But there are still plenty of folks who wonder uh, if it's all being built on shaky fundamentals. And so here's what Ashley had to say about that. I do think there's a lot of hype. I think that most shows don't reach popular success. And I guess it's just going to be up to the companies to decide what level of success is worth the investment for them and if they'll keep doing it. Yeah. that That's my concern. And I think there is room to grow podcasting, of course. I mean, my parents don't listen to podcasts. Maybe they'll check out the Barack Obama show with Bruce Springsteen. I don't know. <laughs> but like, you know, they are a market that isn't into it. The kids market is super interesting. So I do think that there is room on all sorts of spectrums to be able to bring more people into podcasting. So I don't necessarily think it's a bubble. I, I am concerned about it. And I should say, I, I share many of her same opinions and, and feelings about this specific question. On the topic of workplace reckonings, that's something we've discussed uh, with you here on the show a couple of times. What did you and Ashley talk about in relation to these instances and what it might mean for the podcast industry going forward. So when it comes to podcasting specifically, I personally tend to think about these stories along two threads. On the one hand, it's you know greater attention to the traditional imbalances of power that exist in many workplaces, both within and beyond the media. And in this sort of like specific sort of podcast situation, the other thread is something that's unique to the podcast context, which is the sort of the relatively underanalyzed role of what creative labor and producers do and, and various kinds of workers do within the context of a radio or a podcast company. So over at Hotpot, the publication I run, we've been doing more stories meant to push the point on better defining roles of different audio workers and in you know how we should think about their proper valuation in, in, in these companies. And so uh, hopefully, you know, the increasing discourse and the increasing attention and increasing sort of give and take is going to sort of forge better outcomes and parity and power between uh, workers and employers. Would you say, Nick, that it's it's now about the time that podcasting companies maybe go through that uh, soul searching that some traditional media companies have been going through, especially in the last year when it comes to issues of, of representation, discrimination and, and negative workplace environments? 
one hopes like the way that I personally think about this is that like right now it's it's going through it's going through a process that feels very improvisational, right? It's like who's gonna be brought into the public spotlight and kind of dragged mm-hmm. over this. Like what you really want is sort of more quiet structural reforms and, and shifts in power. And so I'm I'm putting a lot of emphasis personally on like whether, you know, unions and or different kinds of just structural checks and balances can be introduced in these companies because we you know, you can't really sort of adjudicate this one controversy at a time. You need yeah. you need something a little bit more sustainable and, and wider reaching. We're talking to Nick Kwa, host of Servant of Pod, founder of the Hot Pod newsletter. Now, as we continue further into 2021 and the world uh, slowly starts to open back up again, fingers crossed on that, how do you think podcast listenership might change? So uh, when I spoke with Ashley about it, um, I think we had slightly differing opinions on it. Uh, here, here's what she said. I would kind of expect that if anything, it might tick up when people have more time to commute, myself included. That is the main time I was listening to things. Now I do take my daily walk for my mental health as we all must, but that's kind of like very limited. (laughs) Yeah, I really do believe we might actually see an uptick. Um, And I think that some of these habits, like again, around kind of kids programming, Mm -hmm. sort of this push away from screens, that will probably stick around and probably just grow a little bit more as well. Yeah, I I do think we might actually just see growth. Personally, uh, I'm I'm not sure. Like, I I think there's been a lot of really interesting gains and sort of growth in, in listening over the past year. Part of it is a little bit unexpected because we saw an initial dip as the lockdown started happening. But I think my thinking is that once the world starts opening back up, there's going to be like some amount of wanting to do different things that you were doing yeah. the previous 12, 14 months. So uh, I, I don't know. I think people will be going back to commute. So there might be some some sort of pickup and listening there. But like, you know, I'm curious about podcasting much the same way I'm curious about something like Netflix, right? Like once I am no longer sort of like, you know, home confined, uh, do I want to be watching as much television, listening to as many podcasts as I was? Uh, I don't know. Any trends, uh, Nick, in the audio world that maybe we should keep our ears and eyes on? Ooh, um, where do you want to start? <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm watching a bunch of different things, uh, a couple of things in particular. Um, I'm, I think this increasing participation from Hollywood and celebrities is going to continue. But I think there's going to be some differences in that as people go back to filming and, and kind of go back to their busy lives and, and stuff like that. And and I say this as, as if it, like the pandemic's already over. It's not. It's going to be another six months plus how many of more reopening up. But I think there's going to be various restructurings of how things have been done and, and how people want to participate in the space. And I think that's going to be interesting. I think we're only in the very early stages of whatever the quote-unquote podcast platform wars are going to be. I've heard that Amazon has been very busy the past couple of months. I, I you know Spotify is still very eager to own this space. And there's always Apple looming on the horizon. So there's there, there are these various big companies. You know, in general, I'm always interested in the latest hit, the, the newest talents, you know, different approaches to genres and productions. It's a lot. There's there's a lot of stories to cover. And, you know, it, this is a bit too optimistic for me to say, but we're only, we're only just getting started. Now, Nick, uh, it is uh, time. Even, you know, I, I, I'm going to be as controlled as possible here because I don't want to, <laughs> you know, just be a blubbering idiot uh, for the rest of this interview. But it's time to say farewell to uh, Servant of Pod. So what are your favorite interviews and episodes for folks who maybe want to go back and listen to some of the, the big highlights? Uh, well, <laughs> I feel like that's a sensitive question. It's like asking me to choose my favorite child. Um, <laughs> so there are three in particular that have become very near and dear to my heart. I'm still thinking about my conversation with writer-poet Hanif Abdurraqib about his season of Lost Notes. I really loved making episodes about different podcast workers and the nature of their roles, and in particular the one about podcast editors with Catherine St. Louis. And on a personal note, I really enjoyed the Best Podcast of 2020 roundtable. Uh, it made me realize that I just don't get very many opportunities to verbally nerd out with other critics about podcasts. All right, Nick Kwa, what is next for you? 
Well, uh, personally, I'm still waiting for my turn at a vaccine. Uh, but professionally, I'm still chasing down the beat at Hot Pod, uh, my trade publication about podcast business. I'm still contributing to Vulture, where I write reviews oh, cool. and do longer stories. I'm also just like a little burnt out in, uh, in general, so I'm going to take it easy a little <laughs> bit. Uh, <laughs> and then maybe after a couple of months, I'll cast around for new projects. Maybe pitch a book, maybe pick up a banjo. Uh, we'll see. Now, the reason why I didn't cry, Nick, is because this is uh, maybe not goodbye for us because you and I are going to stay in contact. We're going to continue to stay in touch regularly about all the latest uh, industry moves in podcasting. Uh, but, uh, you know, as we did mention earlier, Servant of Pod is uh, over for uh, LAS Studio. So, Nick, uh, Nick, thank you so much for everything uh, you did for us for Servant of Pod because, really, it's an industry that uh, I think a lot of people want to know more about, but they don't know how to get that information. And you did a great service uh, for, uh, for all the listeners. Thank you so much. It has been my pleasure, and I look forward to future chats uh, whenever they happen. That's Nick Kwa. Nick, thanks a lot. Thank you. As a farmer's son from a desert region in California, J.B. Hamby thinks a lot about water. I spent a lot of time digging up history, particularly about water, which is the origins of the Imperial Valley. How this 28-year-old became the youngest lead negotiator on the Colorado River ever. And how he could shape the most consequential negotiations to date. Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts.